for coming. Looks like it's going to fall over any second. Right, there we go. So we're continuing our series this morning on transformed living, uh, which is looking at the second half of the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 4 to 6. And um, I can't remember what it was. Was it last year? We looked at transformed life, which was Ephesians 1 to 3. And I think there is a real danger in looking at Ephesians 4 to 6, um, sort of on its own, because I think the danger is that you look at it and you think, oh gosh, I've got to try harder, because there's some tough things in it, I really need to work harder. And we need to realize that Ephesians 4 to 6 comes after Ephesians 1 to 3. So I want to do a quick recap. Uh, I was tempted to read the whole of Ephesians 1 to 3, but then I thought we'd probably not get to anything else. So I'm just going to read out a few verses from Ephesians 1 to 3. And if you're a believer here this morning, if you're a Christian, then this is talking about you. Okay, sometimes, you know, you read the Bible and you think, oh, that's, yeah, that's really good. That's good stuff. But actually, this is all about you. I know it's about all believers, but if you're a believer, this is about you. So, first one, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Every spiritual blessing is yours. So, you may find you're, you're on a journey, you know, you're discovering things about God, but he has given you every spiritual blessing. It's available to you now. How about this? He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So before God said, let there be, he was thinking about you. He had his mind focused on you. He was selecting you. He was picking you out. He predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters. So he wasn't just thinking about you in some sort of random way, but he was deliberately identifying you to be part of his family as a son or a daughter. We have redemption, <coughs> excuse me, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our wrongdoing, the forgiveness of our sin. So everything that you have done in the past, which hasn't been particularly helpful, anything that you might even be doing now, thinking about something else other than listening to me, or anything that you might possibly be doing in the future, is already dealt with by the blood of Jesus. We have obtained an inheritance. So God chose you, he identified you as his son or his daughter, but more than that, you now have a hope for the future. We've already touched on that this morning. Even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. 
So you're, you're sat in the Eden Hall at Oxted School, but spiritually, you're sat in the heavenly places with Jesus Christ. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. So before he said, let there be light, he was looking at you. He was identifying you as his son or his daughter. And he then knit you together in your mother's womb in such a way that you are perfectly positioned to do the things that he wants you to do. And he's got laid out before you. He planned it in advance. You are no longer strangers and foreigners but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. You're part of the family of God. You're not on your own. You're not just a single son or daughter with an inheritance. You have a huge family. Look around you. There's a huge family here, and it's worldwide. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. How many times have we used that, that phrase when we're praying? When we have a problem in front of us that seems to us to be completely impossible and insoluble, soluble, solvable, not able to be solved, we use that phrase. Don't we? We say, you're the God who's able to do more than I can imagine. I can't imagine how this can be solved. And you can do that. How does he do that? Well, it goes on to tell us, according to the power of God. No, according to the power that works within us. So the power that God has to do the things that we find impossible is already active in us. This is who we are. This is the backdrop, the foundation, the magnificent provision with which we approach Ephesians 4 to 6. And we find the first word of chapter 4 that Quincy preached about a few weeks ago is therefore. So all of this, therefore, and Paul then goes on to describe, it's because of what God has done for us. It's because of who we are in him. It's because of his power that is at work in us that we are able to live in the way that Paul outlines in Ephesians 4 to 6. I love this little, it's a silly little poem, but I like it because it sums up exactly what we're talking about. Run, John, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings, it bids us fly and gives us wings. Now, brings and wings rhyme. So with a poem that rhymes, you have to have wings at the end to match the brings. But actually, the reality is God gives us wings and then bids us fly. He gives us everything we need for life and godliness. 
Let's read Ephesians 5, 1 to 10, which is the passage we're going to look at this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, then please turn to Ephesians chapter 5, and I'll read from verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But sexual immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be mentioned among us, among you, as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness or foolish talk or vulgar joking, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no sexually immoral or impure or greedy person, which amounts to an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. See that no one deceives you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them for you were once darkness but now but now you are light in the Lord walk as children of light for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness righteousness and truth as you try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord in that passage Paul encourages us to follow after our Heavenly Father, and his example by walking in love and light. The Greek word is translated sometimes in versions follow. In the one that I read, the New American uses the word imitate. And it's the word mimitai in Greek from which we get mime or mimic. In other words, this is asking us not to follow the Lord in some sort of general sense but rather to imitate him. Have you noticed how children naturally imitate their elders, their parents? there, There might be habits or actions or characteristics. Over many years, people have said to us or to our children, oh, I know whose parents yours are. And particularly when we were running stonely and involved in that, but it was sort of one year later, and they'd see our children and they'd go, oh, yeah, yeah, I recognize you. And, you know, it might be their pretty face, or it could be the way they speak or their, the way they walk. You know, it can be all sorts of things, can't it, where you identify, oh, yeah, I recognize who your parents are. I did think, think that. I hope I don't embarrass her by saying this. I did think that of Hannah this morning. Wasn't it fabulous hearing her play and sing? And it just reminded me of Tim, how he led us so well in worship over many years. It was just a joy. It really was. You know, and you see that, don't you? Those different things, different characteristics in people. We're not being asked to do anything out of the ordinary. You know, when we become Christians, we are adopted as children of God. So all Paul is asking us to do here by the power of the Spirit is to grow in family likeness, to imitate the Father we love. And that's worth 
remembering as some of the things we're going to look at this morning may seem quite challenging. Walking in love and light in this passage means walking in sacrifice, in purity, and being careful with our words. But by the power of the Spirit inside us, we can do it as we are children following his example. So we're going to look at three things from this passage that enable us to follow our Father's example and walk in love and light. The first is, assess your attitude. Paul reminds us that sacrifice is at the heart of imitating God. We are only able to enjoy the truths that we were talking about just a few moments ago about who we are in Christ because of his sacrifice. When we talk about becoming a believer or becoming a Christian, it's not like accepting some objective fact. You know, like the sun is hot. Be careful when you go out, you might get burned. Oh, yeah, okay, I'll put some sun lotion on. Thank you. Or, you know, eating healthily is good for you. Oh, okay, that's helpful. I'll cut down on the McDonald's. You know, it's not that sort of fact. We are born again. We are a new creation. We are completely different to how we were before. We live and act in a completely different way because we're now children of God. We made Jesus Lord of our lives and in his kingdom of light, sacrifice is as natural as selfishness was in the kingdom of darkness. Now, you may think, but I find it hard. I'm not yet perfect. I'm not there yet. Well, we face the same battle that Paul uh, identified with the flesh in Romans 7, where he said, the good that I wish, I don't do. And the very thing I want to do, I don't. The very thing I don't want to do, I do. How many identify with that? Yes, I do. But it becomes a lot easier when we approach it in the right frame of mind. And now I'm not talking about positive mental attitude, but acknowledging that this is difficult. I need help. I can't do it on my own. Just as if I need help with DIY or building work, I'll go to Martin and I'll say, Martin, can you help me? Or can you come alongside me and give me some guidance? Or if I got stuck with a spreadsheet, as I was last week, I'll contact my son, Simon, down in Canterbury and say, oh, I'm stuck, can you help me? Can you walk me through the solution? Let's not be too proud to ask Jesus to help us live our lives with an attitude of putting his will before ours. The heart of sacrifice is love. And we read in Ephesians Five, those early verses, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you. The word love here is such a well-known Greek word, agape, which means putting the other person first, sacrificing your own needs and desires. 
The question is, between God and you, who comes first? Now I want to jump right to the end of the passage that we read in verse 10. Learn what is pleasing to the Lord. The word learn invites us to do something. You see, sacrifice is proactive. It's not like, oh, okay, have your way. I'm going to step back, do what you want. No, sacrifice is proactive. We can't put God first if we don't know what he wants from us. In friendship or in marriage, in any close relationship, it's vital to put the other person first. Otherwise, it's just bullying. Putting our desires first, insisting on what we want, to find out what pleases the other person and then be prepared to have an attitude of sacrifice and serving to put them first. It's helpful sometimes to have an illustration, isn't it? Particularly one that is, is good, but sometimes a bad example can make the point. Uh, and so we're going to watch a, a, a film. No, and not a whole film, just a short clip. So you know, It's only a minute and a half, but it's a bit of fun, uh, and I think you'll get the point. Oh, I don't really want to move this. It's going to fall apart. own dinner for once. I've been at work too, you know, and what, now I get to come home and pack the dishwasher and then unpack the dishwasher and cook dinner and put the washing on, and you know what? I can't continue to live like this because hey, it's hey, not hey, me. Hey, 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 relax. Gonna be alright. How? Here, I'll just show you. Okay, I've been doing this since we moved in. See this basket thing? I don't know how it happens, if it's the house or what, but any dirty clothes you put in this basket, somehow the next day they're just clean, folded, and in a perfect pile on your bed. You're not serious. I couldn't believe it at first either, but it just keeps happening. That's why I didn't tell you. I didn't want to jinx it. You are insane. Try it. You'll see. Unless it's only chosen me. See, I don't know. I can't do this. No, wait. There's other things too. Plates, cutlery, pizza boxes, dirty tissues, anything you leave on this coffee table just vanishes overnight. It's magic. No, she wouldn't have left me. This is what I think happened. I heard her get up in the middle of the night to get a drink or something. She must have fallen onto the magic coffee table and just vanished. Are you insane? No, he's not insane. I've got the same coffee table at home. I need to buy a new music stand. <laughs> I think you get the point, don't you? So let's look at whoops, let's look at some of the things that uh, Paul specifically asked us to do. So we've looked at assess your attitude. Secondly, protect your purity. We read verse three, but sexual immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be mentioned among you as is proper among saints. 
The first two words translated here as sexual immorality and impurity cover all sexual interaction outside of marriage. In fact, the application goes beyond sexual immorality, but the context would suggest that this seems to be Paul's main area of thinking. In the same way, the greed element here surely includes all forms of greed, but in the context would definitely seem to invoke the commandment not to cover someone else's wife. Now, it might at first glance seem strange to go from talking about walking in love to battling against impurity. But it's not that strange at all. Paul encourages us to be self-sacrificial to avoid its opposite, self-indulgence. Whatever else it is, sexual sin is self-indulgent. It's about putting my need for gratification first above the need of someone else and certainly above the desire of God. So if we are to walk in love and in light, we are to have mastery over our bodies and over our purity. So how do we do that? How do we remain pure? Well, there's really good guidance in what Paul says here. He says, must not even be mentioned among you. Or some versions say, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. It may seem harsh. Perhaps we think, well, just a little sin will tide me over for a while, like a nicotine patch. You know, take a little hit so you don't need any more. But it doesn't work like that. Paul is not being harsh here, but being helpful. The way to avoid sexual immorality is to have nothing to do with it, to stay as far away as possible. Here's an illustration. Imagine some radioactive material is found in a field. There it is, glowing green. And the Environment Agency comes out and decides they can't they can't, it's too dangerous to move it. So first they put up one of those radiation tents to try and keep out as much radiation as possible. But you can still see it sort of spilling out from underneath. Then to keep things safe, they put a perimeter fence all the way around it. And they put up a sign saying, do not enter. Now say you were walking by that field, what would be the sensible thing to do? Perhaps you're intrigued, you see the green glow and you think, oh, I wonder what that's about. Should you walk on by or should you climb over the fence just to get a closer look, see what's going on? There are at least three reasons why you shouldn't climb over the fence. First, it's wrong. There's a sign that says, do not enter, don't do it. Secondly, you could be in danger from radiation. Thirdly, if you were tempted enough to climb over the fence, what makes you think you wouldn't be tempted further to approach the tent and go inside? Now, you might think that's a ridiculous illustration, Kevin. No one would ever consider going near a radioactive 
area. Does anyone remember the Chernobyl disaster of 1986? Some of you may not be old enough. There was an explosion in a nuclear power plant causing a radioactive leak. I looked up whether it's still radioactive today, and this is what I found. Yes, the area surrounding Chernobyl remains radioactive. Referred to as the exclusion zone, this 20-mile radius around the plant has largely been evacuated and is closed to human habitation. 20-mile radius. Okay, now look at this picture. Chernobyl Tours. Can you believe it? And the next picture. If you can see it, I'll get out of the way. If you hover, you know, you hover over a picture online, you get a little narrative come up. It says, within the exclusion zone. Crazy, eh? Sexual immorality is radioactive spiritually. Keep well away from it. Don't climb over the fence. Like Superman and Kryptonite, the closer you get, the weaker you get, not the other way around. So what is radioactive temptation for you? Perhaps you're married and the temptation is another person, maybe someone you work with, and you might think, well, there's no harm spending a bit of time with them. Maybe you sense that the Holy Spirit is prompting you to stop, but you think, I, I can handle this, and you know, perhaps I'll win them to the Lord. Deep down, you know what you're doing. You're climbing over the fence. Or perhaps the radioactive material for you is pornography. Perhaps you don't intend to look at it or, you know, you go a period without looking at it. Then you think, well, I'll just go and have a look on my computer. There's no sin in going on my computer, is there? You just have to look at some stuff, maybe a movie. Nothing bad. Just a little look. No sin in looking at a computer. But you know what you're doing. You're climbing over the fence. You know, I quite enjoy looking at Facebook. You know, catching up with people, seeing what they're doing, where they've been, you know, news groups and all that sort of thing. It's interesting. And there's a, there's a little tab where you can click on videos. And there's lots of stuff on there that would interest me. You know, the, the best snooker breaks of all time and you know all sorts of different things but as you scroll through there's some just unhelpful things that come up and it's tempting just to hover and tempting to press play so now I don't ever press the video button when I'm looking at Facebook I don't want to climb over the fence and if I found that I couldn't stop pressing the button, I wouldn't go on Facebook at all because I don't want to climb over the fence. It's better to give up certain things than to head in that direction. Or maybe you're in a relationship. You're not married, you've got no intention of sleeping together. But one of you has a free house and you invite the other over so you can watch a movie and cuddle up on the sofa and just get a little bit closer. You know 
what you're doing. You're climbing over the fence. And what if you've gone too far? What if you've not just climbed over the fence, but you've gone into the tent? Well, you repent. You receive forgiveness. And your purity is restored. Now that may seem, oh, easy. Actually, it's only easy because of the sacrifice that Jesus has already made that enables you to come in repentance before him, receive his forgiveness, and your purity is restored instantly. Paul goes on to say, You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk, walk as children of light. Stay out of the darkness. There's a solemn warning for those who live in those dark deeds. Not those who stray momentarily and come back in repentance to the light. But for those who live in darkness. Protect your purity. Thirdly, watch your words. Uh, In verse 4, Paul says... There must be no filthiness or foolish talk or vulgar joking, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. The third thing we must do if we are to walk in love and light is to watch our words. The three things we're encouraged to avoid here are mainly, but not exclusively, about the things that we say. With the first word, we're implored not to engage in obscene speech, baseness, or, to be honest, all that is contrary to purity. The second word in the Greek is the word from which we get the word moronic. It can just include a low-level tittle-tattle, but in the context here, certainly include the more base type of sexual innuendo. The third word, translated vulgar or coarse joking, is a word that originally used to just mean witty, funny. But in Paul's day, it had changed its meaning and it had a very negative connotation that whatever was said was designed to put down someone else. In other words, Paul is saying that not simply should we be considering what we do with our bodies, but also the words that come out of our mouths. The notion here is that they are never just words, but rather they have power. They have power and impact upon the people who hear them, but they also have power and impact upon you and the way that you then more easily speak that way in the future. Do our words come from light or from darkness? Are we building up with what we say or are we putting down? Are we sullying the sacred gift of sex with dirty talk or putting down other people created in the image of God? Paul would not have us fooled into thinking that it doesn't matter what we say. Our tongues can be used for darkness or for light. And how are we to use them well? Well, Paul tells us, by giving of thanks. And 
You know, that's, yes, giving thanks to God, of course it is. But also, giving thanks to people, expressing gratitude to people for things that they have done, even perhaps if they've done something, something unhelpful or negative. It's very easy to react negatively to that. But actually, it's harder but possible to find something positive to express gratitude for. I want to finish by reading the passage that we've looked at, Ephesians 5, 1 to 10. Uh, But I want to read it from the message. It's not going to come up on the screen because I don't want you reading it ahead of me. I want you just to listen because I think it just describes in everyday language the very thing that we've been talking about. Watch what God does and then you do it. Like children who learn proper behavior from their parents. Mostly what God does is love you. Keep company with him and learn a life of love. Observe how Christ loved us. His love was not cautious, but extravagant. He didn't love in order to get something from us, but to give everything of himself to us. Love like that. Don't allow love to turn into lust, setting off a downhill slide into sexual promiscuity, filthy practices, or bullying greed. Though some tongues just love the taste of gossip, those who follow Jesus have better uses for language than that. Don't talk dirty or silly. That kind of talk doesn't fit our style. Thanksgiving is our dialect. I love that phrase. Isn't that great? Thanksgiving is our dialect. You can be sure that using people or religion or things just for what you can get out of them, the usual variations on idolatry, will get you nowhere. And certainly nowhere near the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God. Don't let yourselves get taken in by religious smooth talk. God gets furious with people who are full of religious sales talk but want nothing to do with him. Don't even hang around people like that. You groped your way through that murk once, but no longer. You're out in the open now. The bright light of Christ makes your way plain. So no more stumbling around. Get on with it. The good, the right, the true. These are the actions appropriate for daylight hours. Figure out what will please Christ and then do it. Amen.